It's Mark Reardon for PNCC Speak, the language of executives, along with Michael Scully, regional president of PNC Bank. We're welcoming back Amanda Agati, managing director, chief investment strategist with PNC Financial Services. Welcome back to PNCC Speak. You were here just two years ago. We're happy to have you back. We need all the help we can get to strategize during this election. Chief Investment Strategist with PNC Financial Services, Amanda Agati is back with us. Amanda, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for asking. I'm delighted to be back with you. What a whirlwind these last two years have been. It is crazy and likely to get crazier. So let's let's ask this question. What are the key guideposts that we're watching right now to help gauge the potential outcome of this election? Well, we are absolutely in the final stages of this race into the end of the election cycle. And I don't don't know about you, but I am worn out. So I'm ready to get to the end of this race. I wish that I could say that there's a crystal ball uh, key indicator or guidepost out there that can really foretell what the outcome is going to be. Um, Sadly, that's not the case. And so we have to look at a number of different indicators to really kind of get a sense of where things might be shaping up. I'll throw polling out. Polling is notoriously unreliable. So I'm just going to say right out of the gate, that's not really what we're focused on in terms of a key guidepost or indicator for the path forward. We do look at betting odds. Um, According to predictit.org, Uh, They assign Biden about a 66% chance of winning the White House and the Dems about a 65% chance of winning the Senate. The blue wave or blue sweep scenario is all the way up to about 64% now. And this is a big move relative to pre-COVID times back in February, where we were looking at more like 43% for Biden to win and 30% for the Dems to take the Senate. We're really kind of sitting at the highest levels of the election cycle right now for betting odds. And so by this metric alone, it's suggesting a change in control. Another thing that we look at, though, is, believe it or not, economic data. And so in and out of election cycles, Q2 GDP in an election year, real disposable income per capita, and also monthly payrolls are actually pretty solid indicators of election outcomes. I think the key question this year, given uh, how unprecedented the environment continues to be, is will voters actually hold Trump responsible for this or blame COVID or some other exogenous force? But if you just look at the data alone in terms of these economic indicators, it would also suggest a change in control is likely. The last one that I wanna mention, and this is a really fascinating one, we actually look at the performance of the S&P 500 itself. And when the market is up in the three months leading up to the election, the party in power tends to stay in power, very, very high uh, rate of accuracy over election cycles. If you look back at 2016, the market that is the S&P 500 was down about 135 basis points into the election, um, suggesting a change in control. Every other guidepost was fixated on Hillary winning. Obviously, we got a Trump win. Um, If you look at where we are today, the S&P 500 is up about 6%. And so this is the indicator that is suggesting that Trump is likely to be reelected. At the end of the day, I think the only thing that's really going to matter is voter turnout. That continues to be the wild card in our view for the election. So time will tell. 
So, Amanda, I'm curious, what sectors are likely to be impacted, uh, either good or bad, by the election? Well, we could be here all day talking about the pros and cons of various sectors being impacted by the election. I'll rattle off a few for you. The big one, which has been in the news a lot recently, is actually big tech or mega cap tech. Certainly under some scrutiny, uh, they continue to be the perennial winners, if you will, in terms of market leadership and market performance. And so usually when you're a perennial winner, you end up with a target on your back. At the end of the day, we think that a lot of the noise um, is really just that, that it's much more noise than actual news. And so even just in the last few days, you're starting to see that noise pick up, that rhetoric pick up in the final weeks leading up to the election, starting to crowd out the news, um, especially with the recent antitrust filing that we saw against Google. Despite that, though, the market uh, really hasn't felt much of an impact on it. And I think the thinking is really that we might see a fine or a tweak to business models, but we're not going to see a full breakup. And so the market just continues to be fixated on leverage to structural growth stories. They've been the winners all year. They will continue to be the, the winners. And there are very few of those mega cap tech names that have that kind of exposure. So net net, the market isn't really moving too much on that news. But again, we'll watch how that plays out. Healthcare is another one likely to remain under a lot of scrutiny, certainly mid pandemic, but in any election cycle, healthcare always tends to be in the crosshairs, uh, things like rising costs, drug price reforms, expansion of uninsured coverage, and so on. It's kind of the usual suspects that you would uh, expect to see in an election cycle. Another one is the energy sector. And although uh, the others seem to be under attack from either side of the aisle, the energy sector outcomes would really differ pretty greatly depending on who wins. So, while regulations and restrictions have come down pretty significantly under the current administration, Biden has obviously talked about supporting the Green New Deal, a recommitment to the Paris Agreement on climate change. And so interestingly, if you are an ESG-oriented investor, you have to have a pretty strong vote of confidence in favor of Biden. So it's not all bad news when it comes to the energy sector, but it's a big distinction between fossil fuel energy and alternative and cleaner green energy sources. And then the final one, which is a little bit different relative to past election cycles, is industrials. We actually think after a long dry spell uh, in terms of performance out of the industrial sector that they could finally catch a bid, in particular under a Biden win, uh, if an infrastructure bill were to get passed. The odds of this outcome rise really significantly if we were to see a Dem sweep though both sides of the aisle have kicked around this idea of an infrastructure package. And so it'd be really interesting to see as the continuation and discussion around uh, ways to sort of fiscally stimulate the economy continue, infrastructure could very well come back into the equation there. So given all the variables with the election, should investors make any significant portfolio changes in advance of the election? Well, this is a great question, and it's one that we have been getting very, very frequently, not only in the final weeks leading up to the election, but really over the course of the entire year, pandemic or, or not. And our answer is simply no. Uh, we never want to make grand or sweeping portfolio changes 
based on a binary event like an election, it's so easy to get caught flat-footed or even just simply on the wrong side of the outcome. And so our best advice in this regard is really to stay as well diversified as possible and not stray too far from strategic asset allocation targets. I mean, we definitely believe that we are in a heightened volatility regime uh, likely to remain not just as a function of the election, but well beyond that, um, given the unprecedented nature of the environment that we continue to be in and the fact that the pandemic has not uh, sought, resolved itself, has not gone away. And so it is really important to make sure that you have a mix of exposures in your portfolio that can help provide additional ballast, dial back some of the risk and volatility exposure inherent in just general public equity markets. And so we still in this environment like things like global infrastructure, uh, REITs, so real estate exposures, uh, large cap dividend growers, not the high yielders, but those that have fortress like balance sheets that can continue to throw off um, nice cash flows in the form of dividends and grow that over time. And so while the market may seem at uh, fairly expensive elevated valuation levels, we still think there are pockets of opportunity and that can really serve investors well in this heightened volatility backdrop. Federal Reserve policy has been extremely accommodative since March and looks to stay that way through 2023. What would make the FOMC change its policy stance? Is this policy forcing changes in investors' portfolios? Well, this is a doozy of a question, and so I'll try to kind of break it down a little bit for you. I think at the end of the day, um, what would make the FOMC change its policy stance is really what happens with COVID. And so to go into further accommodative territory, we think a meaningful second wave of COVID that's as bad or worse than the first is the likely driver to do that. We're, we're assigning a low probability to that, but the market has actually already taken rates into negative territory over the last few months amid the uncertainty and the rhetoric and the case curves you know picking up in various parts of the US and, and globally we've seen the Fed funds futures curve um, trading into negative territory I think today it's still sitting at about three basis points one year out so we're definitely seeing rates pinned uh, near or at the zero bound we've even seen T bills out to six months trade into negative territory um, at the end of the day we don't think that the Fed will actually use negative interest rate policies to move further into accommodative territory. We think they can use forward guidance. We think they can expand their quantitative easing and asset purchases. Um, they can even act as a lender as well. So a lot of other levers to pull to the extent that we need to have a bit more accommodation in terms of monetary policy. The flip side of that, the more optimistic side, um, is certainly if COVID goes away and the labor market starts to improve, I think that would really be the scenario where the Fed would start to reverse course and consider moving policy rates higher. At the end of the day, we think that investors really need to focus on kind of ratcheting back their expectations, particularly around fixed income returns. We've enjoyed double digit uh, fixed income returns over the course of this year. And that's really what happens when you take policy rates from 2% to zero, uh, basically overnight. Uh, and so we've seen rates, uh, we've seen returns be pulled forward. And it's very unlikely to see that kind of performance out of fixed income asset classes going forward. And so 
the key thing that we're watching very closely and also cautioning investors against is pushing too far out the risk curve to try to pick up incremental yield in this yield-starved world. We're, we're just not convinced that you're adequately being compensated at these valuation levels to do that. Amanda, considering the Fed has expanded its balance sheet to $7 trillion, is now the time to be concerned about inflation? Well, when the Fed embarked on its quantitative easing program back in 2009, there was a lot of concern around interest rates spiking and inflation getting out of control, none of which ultimately transpired. And so even though we are definitely in unprecedented territory as it relates to the Fed balance sheet, um, and Fed intervention, we do believe that that will be a fairly similar outcome here as well. So the probability of an inflationary accident, in our view, remains pretty low. We're still concerned about structural factors that really are keeping a lid on inflation. So the demographic backdrop of the population, technological innovation is inherently deflationary, and even low energy prices, uh, to name a few things. It isn't that we won't see any inflation there certainly will be pockets of it. You know, I'm thinking about childcare, lumber, healthcare, and so on, but not enough to become a long-term structural risk. And at the end of the day, if we were to get a spike in inflation, the best hedge against it is actually equities, and in particular, dividend growers that have those strong fortress-like balance sheets that I mentioned earlier. You know, the Fed can talk about letting inflation run hot. Um, but bond markets really aren't flashing signs of yields getting ready to rip higher from here. Meanwhile, we have almost 17 trillion in global debt in the upside down world of negative interest rate policies out there. And that's back to the highest level since the peak of last summer. So where are foreign investors turning uh, when they want to uh, you know, seek out yields that are not sitting in negative territory? U.S. Treasuries, which continues to put more pressure on low, already very low interest rates and higher valuations. And so we're really seeing structural forces coming from a bunch of different angles that we think are likely to keep a lid on rates and then ultimately inflation. And so we don't view it as a problem necessarily today. And we think uh, we have some runway left before that starts to become an issue longer term. Amanda, how should we view today's equity market valuations? Things seem to be very expensive at current Well, measures. everything feels expensive in this environment. That's absolutely true. And if you just look at the S&P 500, uh, it's sitting at a forward P of about 22 times. So by this measure, we would say the market is pricing for perfection when the backdrop is anything but that. You know, we have an election on the horizon, you know, immediate horizon. We have concerns around fiscal stimulus being re-upped to bridge the gap uh, for small business businesses that are continue to, continuing to struggle. We have rates pinned at zero. It's a very challenging environment out there. And so with rates sitting at such elevated levels, um, yes, the answer is they certainly are expensive, but it really is all relative. So if you think equities are expensive, you got to take a look at bonds as well. The yield to duration ratio for investment grade corporates is at its all-time high. Treasury yields to so the earnings yield on stocks is actually double its 10-year average. This is what happens when interest rates are so low. We're basically at the end of a 40-year bull market um, in bonds. There are definitely still pockets of opportunity left at current levels. Not everything is overly expensive in this environment, but you do have to be 
kind of picky as an investor. I think emerging markets look particularly attractive, believe it or not, at current levels. There are pockets of the real estate market that look interesting and are trading below the S&P's average forward PE. Um, but you also have to be very careful when looking at valuations, uh, especially in this challenged environment you might be looking at a stock that may seem like it's deep value, therefore a screaming buy, but in this environment, it's actually a value trap, meaning it's very cheap for a reason. And so very much a buyer beware kind of an environment out there right now. What is the most critical determinant of the market, the economy's path forward? Well, as I said earlier, we expect the market's path to continue to be very volatile in the coming months. But believe it or not, we think it's going to be less influenced by who ends up residing in the White House over the next four years, and much more so by the path of COVID. Why is this? Because it has important implications for the trajectory of GDP growth, the trajectory of earnings growth, market leadership, monetary policy and rates, fiscal policy and stimulus measures. And that, of course, it also has significant impact on the relative attractiveness of asset classes. It's really a two paths forward kind of environment. The path where COVID lingers or remains uh, is a very, very different outlook relative to the path where COVID is effectively eradicated or we flatten the curve. And so at the end of the day, the wild card for the market and the economy's path forward really comes back to COVID. The virus literally trumps it all when it comes to the market. Amanda, since it might be a couple of years before we hear from you again, do you have any additional insight to share with our audience? Well, we have certainly covered the waterfront of topics, but I think the, the important one is really something that I just touched on a little bit earlier that I want to reinforce for a minute. And that is really taking a moment to reset return expectations. And also in conjunction with that, taking some time to revisit asset allocation positioning. We're clearly in a growth-starved world. We're clearly in a yield-starved world, especially with policy rates pinned near zero. And so with valuations across the investable universe really sitting at fairly elevated levels, we've effectively pulled forward these future returns. And so we may not see the same level of return and certainly not the same level of yield pickup from our vantage point over the next couple of years. Unless, as I said earlier, COVID is eradicated and the Fed decides to chart a more restrictive policy path higher. And so I think the key message here is that the returns we've enjoyed in the past aren't necessarily what we should expect going forward. And in order to meet your financial goals, it's really important to kind of revisit that asset allocation positioning. We also need to think a lot more creatively about how to prudently pick up additional growth and yield in this challenging environment. Amanda, thanks for joining Mike and I today for another PNCC Speak. PNCC Speak, the language of executives.